This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. And at that point, I called ATC again, thinking, well, perhaps it was ice. I would descend a couple of thousand feet and see if we could find different conditions and might improve. So we asked for and received 6,000, and we began to descent. And as we began the descent, the engine just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guests are Craig Bellis, who learned to fly at 70 years old, and his CFI, Truman O'Brien, a retired Alaska Airlines captain who logged over 19,000 hours as a general aviation and an airline pilot. Craig and Truman are gonna share their story flying IFR from Bend, Oregon to Vashon Island in IMC conditions when they lost engine power in their PA-28 Cherokee 140. Craig, Truman, welcome to the There I Was podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Gentlemen, you have quite an interesting story and an interesting background. Craig, especially you at 70 years old, deciding this was the right time in your life. Things finally lined up where you had the time and the money together to go flying. And flying with your CFI, Truman, who with a lot of experience, but then kind of went dormant when he retired from the airlines for a dozen years or so came back to be a CFI and help you learn to fly, help his nephew learn to fly. And um, so here you are in IMC conditions, flying from, uh, from Bend, Oregon to, uh, to Vashon Island. Do you mind picking up the story from there? Yeah, it was quite the, uh, quite the experience. I hadn't planned on uh, this unexpected stop that we made on the side of uh, Mount St. Helens. We now refer to this as the miracle on Mount St. Helens, or at least I do. But I couldn't have done it with a better, uh, a better pilot. Truman, of course, uh, has many, many hours, uh, I think over 19,000. But uh, as he's uh, told me before, he's never had a crash before. So this was a new experience for the both of us. But we were coming back from Bend. Uh, everything was fine. I had flown the plane from Vashon down to Bend, Oregon. Uh, we turned around a couple hours later and started our way back. And... Uh, Truman was uh, flying the plane and control of the plane. Craig, can I ask you about, so the lineup that you had, so you knew you were going to, you flew it down there, obviously in VFR conditions. You're a VFR pilot with, you'd only been flying a, a couple years, so you got 150 hours or so total. Is that about right? Yeah, that's right. 
Okay, so you you fly down there in VFR conditions, nice flight down there, no problems, no indication from you that there's anything amiss with the engine or the airplane in any way. Is that is that right? That is correct. There was nothing unusual. Plane sounded sounded good. It hit all of the instruments. Uh, engine instruments were pegged right where they were supposed to be. It was lean just right. Uh, so no no problems at all coming down, and no problems for half the flight coming back. Yeah, and we should update people. It's a Cherokee 140, but you had a 180-horsepower mod with a constant speed prop on it. So good performing uh, aircraft. Yeah, it, it, uh, it was a sweet little aircraft. Uh, unfortunately, I have to use the past tense. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but as you launch for this flight, you guys are looking at the weather, and you realize, all right, this is going to be an IFR flight. Yeah, coming down, uh, coming down, the ceiling was a bit lower than they were, was reported. It was reported 3,500 to 4,000 feet, and it was actually a bit lower than that. So we had to go down through the Columbia Gorge. Again, you know, perfectly normal VFR flight. But we thought, gosh, you know, going back rather than going back through the gorge. And the ceiling had, by the way, lifted a bit more. I said, let's just go IFR. We'll go over the top. And, you know, it'll be a quick quick trip in the clouds. And uh, we'll head down on the other side and make a VFR approach into into Vashon. And, and uh, it'll be, you know, much much simpler way to do it. I mean, Craig concurred, and so that's what we did. Okay, got it. So what were the forecast conditions that you were going to fly back into? Same thing, 2,000 or so foot ceiling? Oh, no, it's even, even higher than that, 3,500, 4,500. Um, it, it was much better and, uh, and would have been fine VFR back, but we just thought, well, you know, we'll just do it IFR, and, and uh, Craig hadn't done any IFR flying really, so I thought that would be a good experience introduction to him and we had a good ceiling below us so that it shouldn't be an issue <laughs> yeah <laughs> although it okay not to be <laughs> yeah. so what altitude did you file back Eight thousand. Eight thousand. okay mm-hmm. and were you in the clear you were on top of the weather at eight thousand no sir we were imc okay you were all right very good so the the bases were at about you said three thousand or so well i i think actually yeah. where we were they were about 4500 or so Okay, got it. And then the weather uh, just kept climbing from there. You don't know what the tops were because once you got into IMC, you were you were in it Correct. the whole time. Correct. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. got it. And that's pretty typical for Northwest, right? Is it is it that oh, kind yeah. of uh, mm-hmm. just kind of murky? All right, so there you are. You're cruising back at eight thousand. Truman's in the left seat, uh, flying. Craig's uh, kind of monitoring in the right seat, and pick it up from there if you don't mind. So we're at eight thousand. Uh, everything's normal. We Suddenly, uh, the airplane, there was a, a sudden vibration, and it did not feel to me like engine. It felt like like something in the airframe, you know, like a, uh, you know, like if we had gear doors, like a gear door hanging out or something. I, it was very unusual. And I mentioned to, to Craig, I said, gosh, that is unusual. I, you know, I couldn't be airframe icing. And I looked out, and of course, there was no ice. And Craig said, well, how about carburetor ice? And I said, well, gosh, it could be, although it's quite cold up here. But we tried the carburetor heat. And, of course, you get the reduction in performance on the engine when you do that. And when we came back out, it, it, I think it was wishful thinking on our part. But it felt like it was just minutely better. Uh, it wasn't really better. And at that point, I called ATC. And, and, again, thinking, well, perhaps it was ice. I would descend a couple of thousand feet and see if we could find different conditions and might might improve. So we asked for and received 6,000, and we began to descent. 
And as we began the descent, the engine just kept getting worse and worse and worse. It never did quit all the way to the ground, but it was running extremely rough. And at this point, I I think I need to tell you, um, you know, something I've been teaching for years is aviate, navigate, communicate. We've all heard that a thousand times. Mm -hmm. The thing that we don't talk about is troubleshoot. Mm. And we, we generally say, you know, hey, if you have a problem, fly the airplane, find a place to go, and then start troubleshooting. Well, it's very interesting. In IMC, you generally don't do that. What you're doing there is you're troubleshooting, and pilots want to fix whatever the problem is. So rather than saying, this is a problem that I think we're going to have trouble solving, and we should start going somewhere right now, I chose to troubleshoot, and Craig helped doing that. And, you know, looking back on it, that that was a mistake. What I should have done is declared an emergency immediately and began climbing and telling the, the air traffic controller, which we did later, that we would need a vector to the nearest airport. Hmm. That would have been the, the proper thing to do. Can you describe for us when you say it just got worse, like what were your, what were your indications, both from instrumentation and the feel and the sound of the engine? Well, to be perfectly honest, I was so busy flying, I wasn't really looking at the engine indications, but Craig was, Mm -hmm. and Craig reports that oil pressure was normal, oil temp was normal. RPM, did you happen to notice the tack, uh, Craig? I did not notice the tack. I I did take note that uh, with the engine running as rough as it was and us losing thrust, uh, there wasn't any oil on the windshield. um, No. Where which you might have had if we'd had a major uh, engine mm-hmm. uh, problem um, in the sense of, uh, you know, destructive engine problem. But uh, the temperature and the pressure, at least uh, early on in this 10-minute scenario from the time it started till the time we were on the ground was nominal. So. And about how far into the flight were you? Where, where were you roughly when it started? Actually, we were just north of the Columbia Gorge. It was about an hour and 35 minutes into the flight. And uh, we were cutting across toward uh, uh, south of the town of Cougar. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, yeah, I'm just following you along in uh, four flight. You route a flight here. So you're across the Columbia Gorge. You're just south of uh, Mount St. Helens when it started. And what kind of instrumentation did your PA-28 have in terms of your avionics? We had the uh, GNS-430W and just standard H instruments. So we did have GPS with a W. And, and we did have our iPad with the FlyQ on it. All right. Correct. Mm-hmm. So you're an hour and a half into the flight. You're an IMC. The engine starts running rough. And you're beginning to troubleshoot, Craig, and pick it up from there, please. Well, as Truman has indicated, he's asked to go to a, a lower altitude, to 6,000 feet. We're still in IMC, and the, the plane seems to slowly be losing more and more ability to maintain altitude. So when we got to 4,000 feet, or excuse me, 6,000 feet, we couldn't retain that altitude, and we kept going down. Truman, I guess it, at that point, it'd be fair to say that you were in, a, in basically cruise uh, pitch. 
Yeah, as uh, as I tried to maintain altitude, of course, we're, we're slowing, of course, as I'm trying to maintain altitude. And so once we got down to eight miles an hour, which is our uh, best uh, glide speed, I just maintained that and the airplane continued to descend. And so the air traffic controllers told us that her minimum altitude out there, I think, was about 4,500. And uh, and she said, you know, I can't get you lower than that. And I said, well, ma'am, we don't have any choice. We're, we're going down. And uh, she very shortly after that said, I'm, I'm receiving a train alert on you. And uh, Craig can tell you that the, uh, the uh, 430 uh, W lit up bright red with all of the train warning ahead of us. And uh, at about that time, I don't know, I think it was around 5,000 feet, 4,800, something like that. We began to break out of the overcast, and there was indeed a mountain ahead of us, quite a ways ahead of us. I mean, it wasn't imminent that we were going to strike the terrain. But I veered to the south at that point, and uh, when we when we did, we came out into a, a, a broad valley, and uh, there was nothing but trees. And uh, I asked Craig, I said, do you see anything? He says, no, <laughs> just trees. And the, and the air traffic controller said, do you see any roads or clearings? And I said, no, ma'am, we're going to put it in the trees. And there was just no choice. Uh, it, it's at that point that uh, I, when I saw the density of the forest there, I thought, if we put this thing in the top of those trees, they will never find us. It's just too dense. But as I looked over my left shoulder, I did see a clearing. And, and I should clarify here, a clearing in the Pacific Northwest is not a clearing. The, <laughs> the, the reason it's a clearing is because it's probably been previously logged or there's a bog there so the trees won't grow. But I thought, well, at least if we're close to that clearing, you know, they can maybe find us. And so I made a 180, uh, nice gentle turn to the left, and, and we continued to descend. And in fact, got right next to the clearing. I mean, it's just a fluke that we were able to get that close. But as we did, then as we uh, came down toward the treetops, I, I had taken a mountain flying course many years before and had taught mountain flying. And one of the techniques that we taught and that, that I had learned was to fly the airplane into the treetops and fly it as slowly as you could and continue to fly it and fly it into the treetops to allow it to decelerate the, the airplane. So just as we came up on the treetops, I went to full flaps and, and, and Craig in a very calm voice said, nose up, and, which I was doing, and we flew into the treetops and, and it worked. We decelerated at such a rate that it did not even activate the uh, ELT, which still amazes me. And we actually, the actual, the forward uh, motion of the aircraft actually stopped and we came straight down. I saw the ground coming up and we plunked on our nose and then continued to flop on over on our backs. And there was a quite large log there that the uh, that left over from early logging that the left wing root uh, landed on. And so consequently, the uh, the windshield was still about what a foot or a foot and a half off the ground. And here we are hanging upside down in our straps. And uh, I said, uh, Greg, are you okay? And he goes, uh, yeah, you okay? I said, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then we started trying to get out of our seatbelts, which is a bit of a trick when you have all of your weight uh, on it. And uh, Craig said, can you reach mine? And I said, I can't even reach my own. <laughs> and, uh, and about that time, he said, oh, I got it. And he falls out of, into the wreckage. And the door was open, so he just stepped out. I released mine and fell down into the wreckage as well and then began climbing out. And I have to tell this part of the story because 
we did laugh quite a lot, believe it or not, during this whole thing. As I was climbing out of the um, wreckage, my left foot got tangled up in something, and I, I said, my left foot's hung up, and I kept messing with it. Finally, got it jerked it loose, and as I got a little bit further out of the door, I said, well, now my back's hung up on something. I can't get out. My back's hung up. And Craig says, I'm holding you. I said, well, let me go. I want to get out of this thing. <laughs> and, and so when he did, I fell right on my face. And it was very it was very soft dirt there. But I literally, I buried my face in the dirt, got my hands under me, pulled myself back up, brushed the dirt off, looked up at him and said, that's not exactly what I meant. <laughs> and, of course, we both started laughing at that point. But uh, both totally unhurt. A few little bumps and scrapes, and that was it. Wow, what an experience. There's so much to go back there and revisit with you. To start with, Truman, you mentioned the whole deal about analyzing your problem. Right. And we were always taught in my military flying, anytime there's an anomaly, maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation, take proper action. Correct. Yep. And easy to say sitting here at zero knots and one G, but there's a lot in those three statements, you know? It sure is. Just maintaining aircraft control when you're having an engine problem and you're in IMC conditions, you've got round dials, it sounds like kind of a standard six pack in front of you with the 430 that has some some moving map and sure. you know some capability there. Um, so how about, how was that piece of it, uh, Truman, just maintaining the aircraft control piece while that you're starting to feel a little bit of anxiety and stress building? Well, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I have, I don't know, thousands and thousands of hours of, of instrument time. And so it really, I didn't find that part to be really stressful because it felt normal to me. But but obviously, when I said I didn't, I wasn't spending a lot of time looking at the engine instruments, obviously, I was still flying the airplane. And I did ask for a vector. I, I, I said, uh, this engine is not improving and we are descending, uh, I'm requesting uh, vector to the nearest airport. And the uh, air traffic control said, well, would you like to go to Portland? And I said, ma'am, we need the nearest airport. And she said, well, I have a hard surface runway at 12 nautical miles, or I have a grass strip at eight nautical miles. I said, ma'am, we'll take the grass. And so she gave us a heading, and we began flying that heading as we continued to troubleshoot and, and fly the airplane. But it was, again, it was, we really weren't using the moving map at that point. We're, we're flying, you know, basic instruments. That had to be a little tense, though, because as I'm following you along in, in the map here, you're, it looks like you're in terrain that rises up to as high as 6,000, 5,000 feet, you know, so, somewhere around in there. And you're, I, you're now think, in a controlled descent below that, right? Yeah, I think actually the, the, those, that higher terrain is a bit further to the north of us. Uh, where we were, I think the highest terrain is around 4,500 or so. In fact, as we broke out of the clouds, you could see the top of the of that hill in front of us went up into the clouds, but it didn't didn't appear to be you know that steep. So I think I think the terrain where we were is probably around forty five hundred, forty eight hundred. You know, if if I if I could interject, Truman is the eternal optimist. <laughs> I, had looked, I, I had I had looked at the profile pretty closely on that route for for the planned trip down, which which I didn't follow that route because of some clouds. So we. We followed uh, the main highway and then down the gorge, but but I know that over that route there are a couple of peaks there that are that are well over forty five hundred feet. They're close to six thousand, and Truman has you know as he indicated hours and hours of time flying IMC. I do not, and uh, of course I'm thinking of those peaks, 
or those ridges, <laughs> yeah. uh, as uh, I'm unable to see out the out out the window. And uh, you know, it it does it does flash uh, in front of you. Truman is busy, you know, doing everything that he can do to to get us safely to the ground. And in those milliseconds where you're still in IMC and now you're getting down closer to 4,000, uh, you know, you're, you're just starting to break out. But just before then you, I'm thinking, well, you know, uh, we could, uh, we could contact, uh, you could sign one of those mountaintops, huh? <laughs> just, uh, and then, you know, uh, lights out instantaneously. Uh, so that did flash across my mind. I have to say, Hey listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. Yeah, that's where I was headed with the question. Is I wonder if that was building any kind of stress or anxiety in your minds that you're, you're in IMC and you're below some of the highest terrain in that sector, it right. sounded like. And, mm-hmm. and so it sounds like, Truman, you kind of had a, a general good sense of where you thought you were in relation to that, so you weren't too right. worried about that. It I, I wasn't, actually, no. I, I, someone asked me, though, they said, uh, gosh, you know, when you broke out and you got into that valley and you saw those trees, wasn't that frightening? And and. And I thought, you know, it really wasn't frightening, but but what was the emotion? And you know what the emotion was? Disappointment. I was very disappointed that there was not some place to go. And I thought, well, rats, here we are, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. I found that very interesting. And, and actually, uh, once, we, once we got into the crash and, and onto the ground, I told Craig, I said, you know, boy, tomorrow we're going to be really sore because, you know, uh, tensing up some, you know, so much going into this. The truth is, neither one of us was sore, and I don't know if we just stayed relaxed through the event or what. But uh, mm. but we were not uh, we weren't that <laughs> hepped up. I, I just I don't understand why. Did you ever declare an emergency with the ATC controller? No, but uh, but it was quite obvious that we were in an emergency yeah. going down. Yeah. And so I, I want to go back to uh, Truman. You had mentioned that you were spending a lot of time troubleshooting and maybe, you know, in hindsight, you would have refocused a few of those minutes over, but what kind of things were you doing to troubleshoot? Well, basically, you know, mixture rich, um, fuel pump on switch tanks, carburetor heat uh, on and uh, back off, you know, that's about all you can do uh, in that, in that situation. Yeah. Because your engine is still running, but it's running very roughly, and very it's not rough. producing enough power to maintain level flight, right? That's correct. That's correct. It sounds like, uh, so you break out underneath, and uh, I don't know, I'm I'm not quite in the experience level that you are, Truman, with the comfort you are. I would have felt relief that I'm underneath those clouds, and I can see the terrain now. And and then your disappointment that there was nowhere to land, yeah. but your realization that, well, I've I've just got to find the best of all these bad alternatives, right? That's correct. That's yeah. correct. Yeah, and and again, you know, I, I like I said, I have trained and I've trained people that landing in the treetops is a, is a viable option, and by golly, it is. It, it works. Yeah, um, and that's it's the not other something thing. I'd want to do every day. But <laughs> that kind of stands out is that this experience you had in mountain flying, 
Correct. And instructing in mountain flying. And I gather, just from talking to you previously, that that had been years prior that you'd done that. It had been. It had yeah. been, yeah. But that all came back to you in the moment. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's interesting. It was just, I don't know, it was a couple of weeks before this flight that I was reading about off-airport landing. And one of the things that came to mind at the time and then subsequently that was ingrained in in Truman's uh, training is this very, quote, low, closely spaced trees with wide, dense crowns, branches close to the ground are much better than tall trees with thin tops. The latter allow too much free fall height. That's out of Mountain Flying by Sparky Imsen. And uh, that's exactly what happened. We were lucky that there were such trees there. Yeah, but uh, once once Truman saw those uh, the lighter colored greenery of a patch of uh, a little younger trees, he maneuvered the planes. So that's the direction we headed. And that Truman is in essence the clearing you were talking about. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. There, yes, there was a clearing that uh, that we got close to, and that again, that was very much uh, intentional. This amazes me that that we decelerated so slowly to not activate the ELT. And that brings up another point. Uh, I, I made, I think, uh, two other errors that that are significant and that I would really like to emphasize. That is, I should have turned on the ELT before we went into the trees. In fact, I could have turned that on at, at any point. And the other thing that I should have done right before we went into the trees is turn off the master switch. Very luckily, we did not catch fire and we were able to climb back up into the wreckage and take the ELT out physically out of the airplane to put the antenna on it and activate it ourselves. But um, mm. in retrospect, I definitely should have turned on the ELT first. So, so Truman, can you uh, walk us through? So you've, you've looked. The first question I have to ask is you saw only trees. Was there any water around to give you the option to either no. land in the water or on there? It was only trees. No. That was the only thing you are going to see. Only trees. Okay. Only trees. There was one... There was one very thin um, uh, logging road that was snow covered, and I seriously didn't think this. If we, if I go for that logging road, and it's narrow enough that we take the wings off at 100 feet, uh, then we're going to have 100 feet of smacking into the ground. And mm. I did not want to do that. I wanted to put it into the treetops. Yeah, because ultimately, what you what you have to do at the point you guys are in is just limit the sudden deceleration. Right. That's correct. Disperse the energy. Slow down the slowdown. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So is dissipate that energy over as long a period as you can. And it really doesn't take that long to survive. You know, a uh, hundred feet, a couple hundred feet will do it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, Second. even probably less than that. I mean, stall speed on this aircraft, I think, is 57, you know, full flaps. And so you figure we're doing, you know, 55, 57 miles an hour. It doesn't take long to, to slow to zero from that point. Mm. I'm curious as to if there had been a lake nearby, would you have oh, chosen? Gone for it in a heartbeat. Would you have gone you for bet. the lake and see the bet. trees? Okay, yeah, that's you bet. In a heartbeat. A very fun debate that surfaces here at AOPA headquarters every now and then is in that situation: Would you be a fish or a squirrel? Um, <laughs> and you know, I've always tended to be the fish. You know, and some people just won't accept the potential of you know flipping in the water and all that. But my concern has always been the trees, which thankfully weren't an issue for, for you guys. It just feels to me that at some point you get into those trees and it's, uh, it's anybody's guess as to how the airplane reacts to the, to the trees. That's true. 
you know, we did take, uh, we, they have recovered the wreckage, of course. And uh, looking at the uh, fuselage the, uh, on the engine compartment, there's one big crease on the right side of the aircraft where it looks like we really did smack a pretty good-sized tree. And, uh, and you know, if, if we'd have taken that straight on, I mean, it could have been you know, a much different outcome. Could have, been, could have pushed the engine back into the, uh, into the cockpit area. So you're correct. I'd rather be a fish any day of the week and get it as close to shore as possible. And by the way, in the mountain flying course that I took, one of the things that we talked about was if you have to put it in the river, because I was out in, East, in western Montana and there are many rivers there. And one of the pieces of advice was look for smooth water because you don't want to put it into an area where there are big boulders in the, in the river. And smooth water will very often be on the curved side of the of a river if the river's curving you want to go on the side where uh, where the river curves out because it'll be the water will be deeper there and potentially smoother hmm. so that's again another another piece of advice yeah yeah interesting so can you just reiterate if you're forced into that situation where you're going to land in the trees truman if you will share with us what you're looking for and the technique to do it well, two things, uh, and this is something that actually we read later, but I, I knew that we wanted an even treetop, so you wanted uh, trees of about the same age. Lighter colored trees are, are younger trees, and the, the most important thing is to fly the airplane all the way through the crash. Get the airplane as slow as you possibly can, go to full flaps. Don't stall it, because if you stall it, you're going to plunk nose first. You want to continue flying it, flying it into the trees to allow the and, and the, at a nose, nose high attitude to allow the bulk of the airplane to slow as you uh, as you go into the trees. Wow. And so then you, you describe how the plane kind of falls to the ground there. You both get out. Mm-hmm. You're standing there. It's, um, it's cold, I think, because you mentioned snow on the ground. So now what do you do? Well, <laughs> uh, there, there's a couple of things. <laughs> of course, the first thing we did was Craig pulled out his cell phone, and I did not have my cell phone in my pocket. And I had to go rummage around in the records to find it, which I did. And once I found my phone, then I had to rummage around and find my glasses, which I also found, which were not even bent, which astounds me yet. Um, anyway, I put my glasses on. Craig and I both checked our cell phones, and we had no cell coverage. And he and I both, uh, the thing that we both commented repeatedly was, how upset we were that we were not going to be able to let anyone know that we're okay. We thought of our wives and our families and thought, oh, my gosh, they're going to get a report that here we are, you know, down in the forest and no way to let them know that we're perfectly fine. That was that was a really a huge thing for both of us. That's That's why one of the very first things we did when we got home was to start researching the latest and best satellite communication be attacked or whatever but how did you get rescued then the elt when when we first got out of the uh, airplane craig did a little reconnoiter around the around the wreckage to see where we were and what was nearby and i began looking at the airplane and went uh, realizing that the elt had not activated i i did have a handheld uh, vhf radio and the the handheld i had charged it the night before but i don't know if i didn't do it properly or what, but the battery was very weak in that handheld. But when I turned it on, I did not hear an ELT signal on 121.5. And so I reached in to the instrument panel and turned the ELT on, which, of course, then I got the ELT signal. Once I realized that the ELT was 
you know, now on, I got to looking at, of course, the antennas pointing at the ground and surrounded by vegetation. And when Craig got back, I said, Craig, we need to get that ELT out of that airplane so that we can get the antenna up so that uh, people will be able to hear us. And I said, also, those ELTs are equipped with a, a mic jack so that you can plug a mic into them. And I did learn something. We did not have a handheld mic in the airplane. We used uh, headsets with push-to-talk switches. And so consequently, that did not work for us. So there's another piece of advice. Make sure that you have a, a handheld microphone in the airplane because you can use it on the ELT. So Craig being much prior than I am <clears throat> and younger, much younger, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, uh, I told him where the ELT was and how to get to it. And he was able to climb back up into the wreckage and into the empennage and take the ELT out. And uh, we installed the mobile antenna on it, uh, put it up. And while, while I was getting the antenna off, Craig reads the directions and, and it says, keep the ELT warm by putting it inside your jacket if it's cold. So, as soon as we got the EL, the antenna on and turned it on, Craig put it down in his jacket. He had the antenna sticking up, and and actually that's what the um, uh, Navy used to uh, locate us. So mm-hmm. that worked. That's a good good technique. Was temperature an issue for you guys? Was it cold on the ground? How was that going? It really wasn't. It really wasn't that bad. It was probably in the 40s. Don't you think, Craig? Yeah. No, it wasn't too bad. There was there were snow fields, but they were. Uh, we, we were preparing to stay overnight, and, and we thought that we wouldn't have too much trouble. Yeah. We uh, Truman, at the point that I was uh, doing the reconnoitering and, and uh, taking photographs of the wreckage, actually, from different angles, was uh, starting to, uh, when he could get back to it, starting to take the seats out to, so that at least we'd have some place to, uh, to sleep that was up off the, the mud and the, and the snow. We had a, uh, of course, we had the little uh, fuel tester that has a screwdriver on it, and we were able to. I was able to use that to to unscrew the uh, the stops and get the seats out of the airplane, which is pretty easy. And also, we had sheepskin covers on the seats where I, I took those off, and I thought, you know, if nothing else, we'll use them as blankets to uh, keep us warm. About what time of day did you crash? About quarter to four. Okay. Right, right before four o'clock. And and uh, so you had about an hour before darkness. Oh, no, 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 quite a bit more. It was probably, what, 7 we, o'clock? But okay. Eight, yeah, eight we, by the time I mean, we were, we're, we were in a valley, and we were in, in relatively tall trees, so that we was going to get darker faster there than normal. But we still had several hours, in which once we, we got the ELT out, then the issue was, uh, can we build a fire? And that's a whole, that's a whole different story. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, about how long did it take for the rescue from the time you you activated the ELT, or really from the time you crashed till the rescue forces showed up? About how long was that? Well, uh, what, that depends what, what on was whether it? it was the first time, the second time, or the third time. <laughs> that is correct. And the story continues. <laughs> oh yeah. The, the, the naval helicopter came. Oh, I don't know. What would you say, Truman? Uh, Oh, eight o'clock, maybe probably about four and a half, five hours later. Mm. Yeah, four and a half, five hours. We could see, we could hear, we kept listening, of course, for for aircraft, and we could hear the the naval helicopter that we later found out came down from Whidbey Island Naval Station. But it wasn't, it was off in the distance. We could just see it peeking through the clouds, and, and we were doing everything we could to try to gain its attention. And after a while, it flew away. It did make a pass kind of near us, so we could see it clearly. And they, 
we were pretty sure they could see us, but we flashed our flashlights at them. And uh, even though it wasn't dark yet, yeah. we were, you know, starting Yeah, it to... wasn't that dark at the time. Yeah. They left, they came back, and this time they were closer. Truman, if I remember right, the, they left again. And that was after you had, uh, uh, we had gone out, I think, into the clearing area where the stumps were. And it was a little easier to see us. There were actually two clearings. There was a little small one that was next to a stream, which is where we right. then was right next to the wreckage. And that's where Craig went out and climbed up on a, a pile of, of logs there so that he could get that ELT up as high as possible. And that's where we were when they came back the second time. But do you want to tell them about the jacket, Craig, or should I? No, I, I'll tell them. I had, I, my wife okay. had purchased a, uh, a high-vis you know, yellow jacket, because uh, Truman and I do work for uh, CERT, uh, the Community Emergency Response Team. And we wear these jackets from time to time. And she had just bought me a new one of these. And just before we took off from Vashon, I decided, I looked at the temperature, of course, in Bend, Oregon. It was pretty cold. So I just grabbed that off the hook and threw it in the back of the plane. And when we got on the ground, uh, that was the jacket I was wearing, this high-vis yellow you know, rescue kind of jacket. And when the uh, helicopter came back, uh, they indicated that later, the pilots told us that they and the crew said that they had seen us in, or seen me in my yellow jacket. Hmm. And when they saw me in the yellow jacket, they left again because they thought that the ground rescue crews, search and rescue crews were there. They couldn't <laughs> conceive that the people that were in the plane crash were actually out there and weren't out there walking around in, in these kind of jackets. So they left. I assume what happened was they, uh, they contacted the, the various search and rescue crews that were out there and, and they had informed them, no, we're, we're not, we haven't found them. <laughs> so that's when they, they finally came back. So the captains of the, uh, the helicopter, all of whom were about 14, I think, um, <laughs> unbelievable uh, naval pilots and crew but they had indicated later that that yellow jacket i had on was both a good thing and a bad thing it was a good thing because they said we would have had a heck of a time seeing you if you hadn't had that on and if truman hadn't been shining his flashlight on on me and lighting me up like a you know like a firework but then they said the bad thing was we thought you were the rescue crew so we were we were leaving mm. <laughs> So they come back a third time, and by the time you get picked up, it was how long, roughly, from the crash? It was 9.30, 9.30, and it was full dark by then. Yeah. When uh, they when they came the second time, I used a handheld radio, not knowing if I was transmitting or not, and I called the rescue crew, and I said, hey, we're both okay. We have our camp set up. We're prepared to spend the night, go home, come back in the morning when, when it's safe to pick us up. And they immediately left. So I thought, well, okay, they heard us. <laughs> and it was only about uh, maybe 15 minutes later that they came back. And this time they really had their spotlights on us and on the wreckage. And then they began circling very low. And I said, Craig, I think they're going to pick us up. We should get over to that bigger clearing where they have room to, to get to us. And so we gathered up a couple items and, and hiked through the through the woods where Craig had already been. He, he knew where that other clearing was. We hiked over. It wasn't that far, maybe I don't know, hundred feet or something. But we hiked over to the to the bigger clearing, and that's when the helicopter came down and dropped the dropped the two rescue guys down on uh, on cables, and they were able to pick us up from there. Mm. And they they winched you up 
uh, via cables? They didn't they actually did. land. Okay, yeah, interesting. Oh no, they couldn't land. They couldn't yeah. land. No, no, no. They were they were locked into a hover position at about I don't know 100 150 feet, and uh, the emergency crew that came down, the two of them, spent a considerable amount of time checking us out. They they really found it hard to believe that we were not injured. Yeah. Um, yeah. And after that, then they uh, then they zipped us up into the helicopter. You know, your rescue experience seems to kind of emphasize a couple of points that I've heard from experienced backcountry pilots, and that is the survival equipment is whatever's on your body. That's correct. Because anything else is, it may get caught in the wreckage, it may burn, it may fly out of the airplane, you know, it just may not be available to you. And that kind of emphasizes your situation here. Well, I, I will have to tell you one more one more quick thing here. We we decided that if we were going to end up spending the night, that we'd better have a fire. And so, of course, neither one of us smoked, neither one of us had matches or, or anything to start a fire. So we went over and uh, and took the battery out of the airplane, uh, which was a bit of a feat, I have to tell you. But we got the battery out and uh, ripped some wiring out from under the uh, instrument panel. And uh, and set the battery up. Took a bunch of our paperwork out of the airplane. By the way, sectional charts burn very well. I should tell you, <laughs> they don't they don't tear very well, but but they do burn very nicely. But uh, we we tried to build a fire, and we're obviously not very good Boy Scouts because it was so wet that we could not keep the fire going. But we started the fire using the battery, mm. uh, sparking the battery, and uh, that worked worked beautifully. So it's interesting. I fly with a uh, with a vest, a survival vest on when I fly my Super Cub. And um, I was explaining to somebody, you know, why I did that. And I learned it from these experienced backcountry guys. And they said, well, then why don't you do it when you're flying like a Navion or a Bonanza? Because if you, it's still the same situation if you go down in a remote situation. And I thought, hmm, that's sure. actually yeah. a very good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it also seems to emphasize the value of these uh, satellite communication devices, whether it's the Garmin InReach or others, you could have you could have really put your family at ease. You could have gotten contact with the uh, emergency. So it kind of emphasizes the value of those things, doesn't it? It does. And, and, and by the way, I will point out one other thing, and that is that when we were trying to get our fire started, of course, we did produce quite a bit of smoke. And uh, and we did hear at one point we heard uh, what I said, gee, is that a chainsaw or what am I hearing? And I said, no, it's a drone. There, somebody's flying a drone over there. They, I bet you they're looking for us using that drone. And sure enough, the uh, Clark County uh, Search and Rescue crew, that was their first actual deployment of that using that drone. And they were following the radar track of where they had lost us on radar, which was obviously, you know, two or three miles from where we were. But we could hear the drone going back and forth looking for us. And it was later reported to us that the ground crew did in fact see our smoke, but they didn't they couldn't tell exactly where, where it was coming from. Mm. So Yeah. Interesting. Now what about from your family's perspective? When did they hear when did they become concerned that there was an issue and when did they hear you were okay? I, actually well, this is amazing. <laughs> My wife I had I had texted uh, both my wife and Truman's wife about ten minutes after we uh, launched from Ben, so they knew what time we had left, and they knew approximately when we were due back. And both Truman and I always text our wives the moment we land to let them know that we're safe and sound. We knew that when that time frame had passed, they were going to really start to get concerned and 
hopefully not let their minds go to all the worst places, maybe suspect that we stop for fuel. You see, our, our airport doesn't have any of those resources. We have a grass field at, mm-hmm. uh, on Bashan. So we might have stopped at Bremerton or something to fuel up. And But uh, as time went on, they both started to be concerned. And then, Truman, you take it, uh, your wife... Uh, received a phone yeah, call. This, yeah, this is really interesting. My wife had been outside. Uh, we have horses, and she was out tending to the horses. And she was beginning to get a little concerned, but uh, she came back into the house just as a message was going off of our house phone. And so she ran over to, to catch that, and it was a detective from Clark County saying that he had something urgent information for her that she should call him right away. So this is quite late. And uh, he said, well, I'm you know, very sorry to say that you're... Uh, Husband is uh, down in an aircraft out in the forest here, and we're currently on the search and rescue. And he was in a very bad place for the cell coverage. And he said, "I will call you as soon as I get to someplace where there's better better coverage." So they hung up. My wife immediately called my daughter, who came. And anyway, they called back. the uh, The detective said, "Well, boy, if I got good news for you, they're both fine. You know, we found them. They're fine, and uh, and not to worry. Yeah. That that was a good thing." Wow, what what an experience. Are there any other lessons learned that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with us? You know, back to that aviate, navigate, and communicate. Boy, if I were IMC again and I had that type of an engine problem, I think the first thing I would do would be to climb. I would just declare an emergency and just start climbing as long as I could get the airplane to climb. You know, altitude is your friend. And uh, the, the higher you are, the more chance you have of, of either solving the, the problem or finding someplace to put the airplane. So I would, I would, my piece of advice to anyone who's flying an IMC that develops any kind of an issue, even if it's one that you think you can solve, go ahead and declare an emergency immediately and begin climbing because uh, it, that I think it's going to prove if you find, oh, gosh, I forgot to switch tanks, big deal call and say, emergencies solved, mm-hmm. you send back to the proper altitude. I think, Craig, it's so interesting, and it shows your background that of this entire scenario, all of the things that you both collectively did so well, the thing that you keep coming back to is the thing that you want to improve on, the thing that you could have done better. Correct. And I just think that's a testament to the, the professional background you bring and, and why you became the pilot you became is because that, that's how you always looked at your performance. You know, I've had, you know, I mean, obviously I have years and years and years of experience and I've had people say, well, you're the expert. And my response has always been, I'm not an expert. I'm a student of aviation and I don't ever want to be anything but a student of aviation because there's always something new to learn. Always. Yeah, I was just going to add that people do ask me, uh, you you run into the cliche, of course, all the time, are, you know, are you going to get back up on that horse? Uh, is your wife going to let you uh, fly? Uh, that sort of thing. And my, and my response to that has, I've looked at it and I've said, no, yeah, I, absolutely. I can't imagine this doing anything but making me a better pilot. I don't recommend it as a method uh, for making you a better pilot. But uh, clearly, clearly, uh, I think it, uh, you know, you, we practice all of these off uh, airport landing procedures and whatnot, but not until you're in the teeth of it. And, you know, it's life or death. Uh, does it really, really sink in? Well, I, I can't thank you enough for uh, sharing your story with us. It's a, it's a great story with a lot of lessons learned. Of course, one of the big ones that we really haven't stated as bluntly as we should is just the composure between the two of you 
And I wonder if you can speak quickly to that. You had mentioned earlier that you shared a lot of humor even during the whole event. That seemed to keep you both relaxed and yet focused and, and maintain an even keel throughout this pretty stressful event. You know, Craig and I have worked together. I mean, we've worked on our airplane and we've worked on other projects here on the island. We both do a lot of volunteer work. And one of the things that, that we always do is we've always had a lot of humor between us. We always harass each other immersively, and, and uh, that really paid off for us. I mean, we, someone said, well, didn't you get on each other's nerves? And, you know, we did not. Uh, we actually kind of enjoyed each other's company. I, I told someone later, I said, you know, what? I don't ever want to do this again, but if I ever did, there's only one person that I'd want with me, and that's Craig Bellis, and I really believe that and mean that. We worked great together, and we just had a great camaraderie, and it, it really helped both of our attitudes, I think. Well, Craig, as a uh, as a relatively young pilot, Craig, that's about the best compliment you can get from an experienced pilot is that if I get in a scrape, I want you to be there with me. That's that's pretty high praise. Well, you know, I probably should just shut up and let, let it end off on that note. But I, I have to tell you, Truman made reference to the fact that just before we went into the tops of the trees, I had indicated to him a nose up. And I, and I knew he knew what he was doing. But uh, I said that for two reasons. Uh, one was uh, just to remind him that uh, we don't want to stall, but we do want to be in a, in a relatively nose up position. But the other was I wanted him to know that I was there with him and that we were in this together. So he wasn't alone. When we got on the ground, we, you know, we did joke and tease one another. We were happy to be alive. And it was sort of a, what else are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, great. Well, thank you both so much for your time. And uh, we're glad the outcome ended as it did. Did you ever find out uh, what happened to the engine? We have not. Uh, I've been talking to the NTSB and they the, I talked to the recovery people that recovered the wreckage. Uh, evidently, the NTSB has got a huge backlog right now of, of investigations, and so we're just going to have to wait our turn. And since we did not have a you know, major injury or fatality, they, it was fairly low priority for them. Mm. We are, of course, very anxious to know what, uh, yeah. what happened to the engine. Okay. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Well, an exciting flight with Craig and Truman. IMC in their Cherokee 140 back to uh, Vashon Island. And I just, the takeaway from that for me is just how calm and collected they both handled this situation that had so much to it. Engine problems in IMC conditions over mountainous terrain and really nowhere good to land. And they handled it all so beautifully as a crew. We're thankful they shared their story with us and certainly thankful for the outcome. Thanks for joining us on this edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, David O'Leary, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.